Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to tonight's discussion on the influence of the media. I'm Tazine Ahmed. I'm an investigative reporter for Dispatches on Channel 4. Um, let's face it, tonight's discussion could not come at a better time, could it? I imagine most of us read about Cambridge Analytica and that big story on our smartphones. Can I just get a show of hands for how many people actually watched it on television or a newspaper or on the radio? Okay, and how many um, saw it for the first time online on their phones or an iPad? So it's about 50-50, which is quite interesting. Okay, so um, that story, as most stories, does first break on social media. And it's closely followed, if not often intertwined, with opinion. And it's usually opinion we already know and we agree with and simply reinforces our position. So with this reliance on social networks as our source of news and information, what damage, we're asking today, is this going to do to the major news outlets? Who can we really trust in this age of accusations about fake news and our increasing reliance on citizen journalism, which can be both really exciting and also really unreliable? How much does this ensure we continue to live in our own bubbles? And how vulnerable does this make us to manipulation and propaganda? I have with me some of the best people to help me unpack this. Fatima Manji, presenter and reporter at Channel 4 News. Claire Fox is the director of the Academy of Ideas. Janine Gibson is the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. And I know you were all expecting the token male on the panel, Alan Rusbridger, but sadly he slipped a disc and he's not very well. But he is with us, hopefully, on Twitter. And I would really encourage you to take photographs, to, um, to tweet, to sort of start a debate on Twitter and include all of us in that. So we wish Alan well, um, but I would like you to really just welcome this really stellar all-female panel. Please do give them a round of applause. So Fatima, this week's story is a really good example, isn't it, of investigative journalism at its very best. And while we may have read about this on social media first, the truth is it was, of course, legacy journalism that broke the story. The Guardian, The New York Times and Channel 4 News. And they also led on this story. Is this a moment where we really realise the value of old journalism? Well, I, I think... It's difficult now to distinguish between old journalism and new journalism because the, 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 the boundaries are blurred. You know, so much of what we do is old journalism. It's checking facts, it's talking to sources, it's finding stories, it's uh, all of those things that we'd expect old school hacks to do. And I think those principles very much guide us at Channel 4 News. But a lot of our uh, traffic, for want of a better word, particularly from younger audiences, does come from online. Uh, as many people who watch Channel 4 News on television, many more will have, will have actually watched the Cambridge Analytica story on Facebook itself. Uh, so, you know, the boundaries of old, old journalism and new journalism, I think, are a little bit blurred. But yes, I think it is a reminder that in the end, regardless of technology, regardless of developments, that you do, as a journalist, have to look back on those principles, which should be our guiding forces. And that's something that is very important to us at Channel 4 News. And Janine, do you think that this story was broken by bus feed, for instance, that we would trust it in the same way that we are trusting it and not really questioning it at all? Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question because this story actually goes back several years. Um, the first story about what Cambridge Analytica was doing with data and Facebook was broken four years ago in The Guardian, <coughs> maybe even five. I was still there. I was at The Guardian for a long time. Um, and nobody much noticed. It was a quite a specialist interest thing. Um, and Carol Cadwallader, who's the Guardian journalist and a 
fearsome woman investigative journalist who we must pay tribute to, just dug in and would not drop it and would not drop it, has been reporting it out for years. But um, a lot of those incremental stories haven't really uh, changed people's view. And certainly, you wouldn't put your hand up in this room and see 80% of people going, oh yeah, I know all about this. What, what really happened with this one, and it's absolutely true, I raced home to be home in time for Channel 4 News on, on Monday night, even though there was a preview copy knocking around our office. I was like, I wanted to see it go out like everybody. It was a big moment. Um, but what really happened was that Facebook um, jumped the gun, announced what they were doing, um, uh, caused quite a lot of attention to it by, by behaving quite badly and jump, jumping the gun on the story. And it was amplified massively by social media before the story dropped. So it was coming into a very open goal. Now, that might not be the trickle-through effect to, to how you guys read it, but that, that meant that everybody was um, in the wider media waiting and watching and all over Twitter and Facebook to distribute it. So the moment the story dropped, it made a massive impact. It wasn't, didn't need fanning or, or distributing. And that's probably the key difference. I'll answer the bit about BuzzFeed, I promise. But I think that's the key difference in the world we're in now, that the core journalistic skills, whether they're employed by BuzzFeed or by Channel 4 or The Guardian or The Observer, are basically the same. We can talk about malicious bad actors later, I'm sure we'll come on to fake news. But, but the difference is how we distribute and get the story to everybody, because the, those traditional media don't have the same audience anymore in the, in the way they used to. And to answer your question about BuzzFeed specifically, we did a story last June <coughs> about uh, 14 people who had been assassinated in the UK or died mysterious deaths, died mysterious deaths if there's a lawyer watching. And uh, we, uh, it was a two-year investigation which showed that there were uh, Russians uh, at the heart of many of these deaths and an awful lot of inquests that uh, uh, ruled that these deaths were all perfectly innocent, even though some of them were you know, poisoning by plant uh, fertilizer um, in a locked room. Uh, and it probably took... It probably took, we were forced to drop it in the middle of an election cycle because of an inquest that was going on, and there were lots of reasons why that story didn't quite fly at the time. Um, but six months later, that story clearly has come to uh, much greater resonance and is being cited in Parliament and is at the heart of reopening the investigation into these deaths and is being quoted all over the time. And I, I sort of watch them in Parliament going, thanks to BuzzFeed for uncovering this, I find it both uh, hilarious and pride-making. And I wonder <laughs> if you had been The Guardian or if you'd been one of the sort of old-school journalistic forums, that that credit would have been very easy to come your way. I mean, we've been, we, we started uh, in the UK four years ago and we, ha we started hiring uh, news journalists and really concentrating on news uh, sort of about two and a half years ago, really pushing on news. And we've got a big investigative team and, in that t and a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to boast, we got uh, named uh, News Website of the Year, but the Society of Editors. And that is because for two years we've been, we did the Brexit impact report that you might have seen that showed that all the scenarios for Brexit are terrible. It wasn't our view, it's government. Um, commissioned document, and um, nobody said this is fake news. Everybody said, oh yes, BuzzFeed got that, that was a good leak, that was a good story. Um, we did the kids' company story, we did the RBS story, we did the Russian story, and I think if you just keep doing good news and good reporting and solid journalism, um, it is possible in two years to build up a reputation of trust. Our readership is almost exclusively under 35. They don't necessarily see the, the Times or The Guardian as more authoritative than BuzzFeed. Mm. They we just report it out and show our working. And, and Claire, ultimately though, when a big story breaks, or a story like the one that's broken this week, aren't we much more likely to go to 
you know, the trusted sources, the ones we've known that have been established for a very long time. BuzzFeed is, you said, how many years old? Um, in the UK, four. Yeah, so that's not very long. So wh where do we go when we want to make sure our news is trusted, we can rely on it, it's the truth? Well, I, <coughs> I think it's a reasonable assumption that people will say that there are standards of journalism. I, I slightly want to query something, though, because I think there was a crisis of investigative journalism in mainstream journalism before the likes of BuzzFeed came along. I mean, it's not as though there's been a healthy, robust commitment to in decent news standards in a lot of newspapers or TV channels for some time. I mean, I don't mean it hasn't existed at all, but there's been something of a crisis. I mean, I'm interested in, for example, documentary making, and people say, well, no one's interested in documentaries. You know, that's been going on uh, when I, I spoke at Sheffield Documentary Festival, you know, 15 years ago, and, and the kind of mainstream um, uh, news uh, sources were saying, well, is anyone interested in that? We've got to kind of jazz things up. There's been... Uh, a, a move towards comment and opinion in mainstream media that predates the emergence of new media. And so it's not as though it's a straightforward sort of split. I, I also think that there's, um, there's a, you know, there's, it, it, it's not just who would investigate, but it's what you investigate and how, I think. I mean, I think that one of the questions we do have to ask is that the mainstream media did get two of the big stories you know, missed two of the big stories, you know, of international times, which was Brexit and Trump. And they did actually not have their finger on the pulse. So investigative journalism isn't always looking behind and kind of doing those fantastically important stories, by the way, which is to seek out that which people don't want you to know. But in this instance, this was, as it were, staring in, in, in plain sight, i.e. voters were about to do something that nobody thought they were going to do. And mainstream journalists were taken, or not journalists, but journalism was completely taken aback. So when you ask about who you trust, I think that's created quite a challenge for all journalists, anyone involved in this game, which is to say, how did we not notice that there was so much uh, tension in the country that people were going to vote Brexit, for example? Why did we think that wasn't going to happen? And I so... Uh, in that sense, the bubble, I think, does exist within journalism as well, because what you investigate and how you investigate it can be determined by the fact that you've got a very one-sided view of the world. So I want to argue for investigative journalism, but that's not enough for me. You've also got to be critically minded, ask difficult questions. And even with Cambridge Analytica, you know, the assumptions behind this, in many instances, go unchallenged. I mean... I'm yet to be convinced that there is any evidence that just because these uh, snake oilsmen um, associated with data mining uh, boasted that they were going to get a Trump election by mining people's uh, data and invading their privacy, um, that does not, to me, explain why Trump got elected in America. So I'd actually, you know, so I don't, I think we too often go along with the narrative that we've set ourselves. So. I think there's a deeper problem on the one hand and not always the one that's, all, that's identified. Janine, did you want to come in? No, I, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, and when you watch the film in particular, the secret filming that Channel 4 did, um, and you watch these guys boasting about all the impact that they've had and what they can do, and you just think, oh, that's all 
bollocks though, isn't it? I, that's just that's just to in, inflate the price tag. I think the um, the heart of the story, what we seek is an explanation for things that we didn't understand as a, as a media as a whole. We didn't really see Trump coming and we didn't really see Brexit coming and we, s we seek a magic solution that goes, oh yes, it was those sinister old Etonians with their data mining, <coughs> which is obviously far too simple. Um, but what they did do in the scandal that, that has been brilliantly uncovered is they stole a, a shed load of stuff without anybody's permission that Facebook was arguably complicit in it and certainly not looking very hard, that possibly lots and lots of other companies have got, have got similar access to an enormous amount of material. And what are they doing with it? You could argue if you were Edward Snowden, and I had a part in that story, so I probably would, that, um, that actually we should have all been w really worried about this for quite a long time, and that what he showed us was that how much of our lives is accessible all the time to everybody, but we were all a bit misled by William Hague saying, if you've, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear, and, and therefore we went, oh, well, I, I, I've got nothing to hide, that's fine. Um, and that actually what we're seeing now is the consequence of our slight uh, casual uh, uh, behaviour towards our online identities. Um, and, 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 that, and that particular issue that you know you're, you're sort of talking about, which is really about you know trust and and you know the way that we put our trust in in Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and the rest of it, and not really think about the the, the sort of trace we're leaving behind. Trust also lies at the heart of what we do as journalists. And I, I guess I wonder, you know, who who can we trust when we're talking, you know, as we have been doing for the last few years about fake news, where citizen journalism is so important to you know what we do in getting access to stories and places we cannot get to. Who can we really trust? And could, could we, for instance, for argument's sake, in the next two years, if once this this moment has passed, could if Facebook suddenly said we're going to have a news a news section? Would that would that be something that, because of just the massive number of people that are on Facebook, would eventually just forget about this moment and actually subscribe to Facebook news? I mean, that that is a good question. I mean, just before I come to that, I just want to pick up on Claire's yeah. point about Trump and Brexit. It is absolutely true to say that certain sections of our media were not in touch with those phenomena. That's absolutely true. But I also think we can get lost in the business of predictions. I don't think it's the job of journalists to predict the way a vote will go. It is the job of journalists to reflect sentiments ac accurately across populations. And that I think there was, there was something wrong there uh, across various media. But I think you know, we can get a bit lost in trying to predict what the next election looks like. And I think um, we have to check ourselves slightly on that. Uh, on the point about who do we trust, look, it's a, it's a question for me as a citizen as much as a journalist. Who do we trust? Who can we trust? I think that is where the issue of reputation matters uh, massively. So you know, earlier where you talked about legacy media versus new media, if you, if you trust uh, a particular organisation and you think that their values align with yours, then that is something that um, works in their favour in terms of trust. Um, for us at Channel 4 News, one of the things that we do is a service called Fact Check, and um, we regularly have both sides, with Conservatives and Labour, complaining about it, which means it must be doing something good. Um, and the idea is that we will look at claims that people are making and look at the evidence and how does it stack up. So that's one way that we can sort of create trust among our community to say, well, if Channel 4 News is saying something, then there must be some evidence behind it. It's not just a case of um, rolling with something partisan. Obviously, there's, there's a distinction to be made with broadcast and print and online because we are regulated media. We have Ofcom. Uh, you know, there are legal obligations that we have, and you have a certain understanding that what you are being presented with has uh, made efforts to seek both sides, has made efforts to, to present something in, an, in an imp as impartial a way as possible. Obviously, mistakes are made. 
but uh, I think there is a distinction still to be made between broadcast and print. Uh, and online is a slight Wild West area. Um, you know, you have organisations like BuzzFeed, and you know, look, I don't work there, but I think lots of people would trust investigations coming out of BuzzFeed, and we've seen some great journalism. But there are many more online news websites, newer ones, many more that are partisan. How can we trust those? Will we ever trust those? I don't know. All of these things are still open to question. Well, how can I mean, how can a sort of, you know ordinary citizen who doesn't work as a journalist, doesn't do fact checking for a living, how can they be sure that a story is true and can be trusted as real? It's not fake. This is, I spend so much of my life worrying about this. Um, when you uh, tweet out a story, so you can spend you know up to two years on a story, or even just a few good hours on something, a whole day on a, on a piece of work, and we apply, I absolutely assure you, uh, uh, the, as rigorous standards as you would find at The Guardian or The New York Times. I have worked with and for both organisations um, uh, many, many times. Uh, and I tweeted out our, our piece of work, having polished it, legaled it, subbed it, edited it, reported it out, pushed back, changed it, all the rest of it, been to people for comment, or, and then the first thing that happens as soon as you tweet it out is almost invariably the first response you get is, is that true? And you think, well, obviously I think it is, yes. I'm very much publishing this because I believe this to be the truth and, and, and I'm putting our reputation and our website's reputation and our legal budget behind it. Um, uh, but I have a lot of sympathy with it. I have a lot of sympathy with people going, I don't know you. Um, and yet, the same people that are the first ones to go, is that true, seem to be the ones who will happily copy and paste something from Facebook and just share it with all their friends and go, well, I heard. And um, there, was a rumor, there was a rumor going around, this is an instructive one, uh, there was a rumor going around earlier this week that somebody very famous had died. I realise as soon as I say this, all anybody wants to know is who was that. But I'm not, uh, <coughs> not going to spread this rumour. But there was a, there was a rumour going around, and uh, you might even know what I'm talking about, because it went, it went round everywhere like wildfire. And to the point that I noticed that some very famous newspaper brands in this country, with a much longer journalistic history than the brand I work for, automatically republished previous stories about this person because some piece of software that some department probably called search engine optimization in their company triggers on a trending topic and then will automatically republish stories according to that trending topic. So stories that had been published last year were republished two days ago, were republished one day ago, were republished six hours ago. I was watching this happen, and it's not just big papers, it's smaller papers as well. Lots of people clearly have this technology. I don't know how you would know as a reader, why, why that's happened or what's going on or if that person's, clearly people are Googling, going, is this person alive or searching Twitter or so on. And that's spawned journalism in itself. Um, that to me is terrifying. That's a sort of automated process that removes any judgment or sense or phone calls or checking from the process. And that's very, very alarming. And you know, and that's where technology sort of destroys the, the, the trust in the Well, brand. I think this is where the platforms have really got to, um, they, they've come to enormous prominence refusing to be editors and refusing to um, take any responsibility for the content and saying we're just, we're just the place that the content is available. We don't, we don't. Um, but in much the same way that we sort of uh, look at autonomous cars and um, uh, the other extensions of AI, we have to think about what it does for news and democracy. So Claire, how does, a, whether it's new media, digital media, social media or old media, how does a brand maintain trust? Well, I, I, so we have, to, we have to untangle a number of things because it's interesting. I think your point about uh, 
judgment, Gillian, is crucial. And one of the difficulties, for example, with the new enthusiasm for fact-checking is that actually you'll see that a lot of the times it's now being argued that it should be automated. And you can see that there's going to be algorithmic... I mean, and I'm, you know, I like the idea that I know what the facts are, but also the facts aren't the truth. And, you know, you'll get to a situation whereby and we are getting to that situation where we're demanding that social media platforms, for example, uh, and that will signal what is true or not, and will remove things that they consider not. I mean, that scares the hell out of me because that amounts to censorship or can. I mean, you're, you know, making judgments that I'm not entirely convinced I trust them to make. Um, so, I so when you ask, how do you how do you kind of? Um, I think I think we have to be very careful about asking too many people to be gatekeepers. That's what I'm saying is because the demand is in, you're more than just publishing, you've got to take responsibility. But I'm not convinced that I want Facebook and Twitter to, to start behaving in this editorialising way. I mean, I want it to be there so that, you know, rubbish and all in, in, in many ways. I, I think that just on your, on your famous person story, because it's illustrative, um, I was told that story um, um, by um, four separate, well-respected journalists, <laughs> right? And so I thought it was true. I thought it was true because I was told by people who worked in mainstream media and I was told that it was going to come out. So the true bit, the bit was, it's not out yet because we keep, you know what I mean? So I go along with this. So of course I tell my family, because that's what you do, right? I then look on Twitter and then I say, oh, rumours are on Twitter. You are the problem, Claire. You are so the problem. The four, people, the four people who told me work for, well... That, the point I'm making to mm. you is... Was it the Sun, we, no. we Do no. they work for the Sun? We all, no. <laughs> Prejudice there, Janine. Um, no, no, they're the what, I, what I'm trying to say to you is, is that all sorts of people believe all sorts of things a lot of the time, and you can make the mistake of thinking because a well-respected brand says it must be true, even though they didn't publish it. I, I just mean... So in, well, in you fact, know, the old rule used to be you just need two reliable sources, and you evidently had four. Yeah, well, in this instance, you think, God, if everyone's saying it, it must be true, right? I mean, and then you realise that's not true the, at all. The other rule is but, never, never break a death. But, but one, <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the other uh, important aspects of this is I think we have to have, myself, more faith in, in, in the public. And we, we um, run a debating competition for sixth formers, debating matters, and we've got a debating topic on fake news and who, who you can trust the media. And, of course... Um, you know, there's two sides of this debate because it's a formal debating competition and, and one side says we need fact-checkers everywhere to tell us or it's destroying democracy and the other side says we're not idiots. And to a certain extent there's a truth to that which is, is that I think that people are more savvy. So I think there's a danger of us saying well how will anyone work it out because I think that people are more and more familiar. It, and the other question we have to ask is what are we going to do about it? Because if you sort of conclude well you know in this wild west of self-publishing people people can say lies and this is atrocious and what can we do? The difficulty is, is that I don't want those people to be banned or censored or rather who gets to decide. And so my problem is, is that we just need better good journalism that will shine out as a beacon and also a bit more trust in uh, the public. Now, one of the other aspects of the Cambridge Analytica story, of course, is the idea that the voting public are all idiots. And that's what Steve Bannon 
commission people to say. They say, I mean, and the problem with this, um, this uh, academic is that he thinks that he can work out what each and every one of you will vote for and everything about you through your likes on Facebook, right? This is apparently an insight in a kind of very determined way well, as to who you are. One, one of the things they did say, uh, and certainly that was in the Channel 4 investigation, was that they really were able to take advantage of our psychological need to reinforce our views, our own views, yeah. and where we because stand. Because they think that we are a passive blob of people who can be forced to do things by them. But there is you know truth in it, Claire, isn't but, there? But there I is think truth but in it. But, but that's what... I'm so... so uh, I don't mean that I don't want to have this argument. It's like, in a way, the key argument for me. But what I'd say is that's part of the story of Cambridge Analytica. This is a rare, right? How we view how people are influenced. Do we think that people read newspapers and believe everything they say? Do we think that if they see a Facebook hit uh, ad and a piece of propaganda that they immediately vote a certain way? And I think it was right, um, what one of you said, sorry, uh, um, which of you, which is, is that partly we're trying to explain what we didn't understand. So if you actually read the commentary that's running alongside this, it says, aha, that's why Hillary Clinton didn't get elected and all the Trump voters were manipulated. Aha, we always knew those, Trump vote, uh, those Brexit voters were idiots, you know, racist and xenophobic, but also stupid. And so now we can explain it all because actually they've been manipulated. We weren't manipulated, of course, because we voted the right way. And when you can sort of say, well, you know, we're not meant to predict the future, um, it's also true that in the build-up to the EU referendum, I did lots of panels, and on a twice, two occasions, I was on panels with very well-known and established people who were commentators, and in both instances, they said, does anyone know anyone who's going to vote Brexit? And I said, well, you need to get out more if you don't, can, right? Can I, I mean... This is like this idea. Who knows anyone who's so stupid that they do that? Can I let Fatima come I mean, in? You know, the people you met, I think that, that, that reflects on them, frankly. You know, if anyone who went out and about and talked to anyone who wasn't in a media bubble would know someone who voted Brexit. Um, beyond that, though, this idea of, you know, the public aren't stupid, but the public aren't stupid, but we need to think beyond Cambridge Analytica itself and what the processes that this company and other companies, indeed, are engaging in. It's not just about Facebook likes. They can marry up your credit history, they can marry up things that are happening offline with your online pattern. And many of us, I'm sure, would not be comfortable with that sort of information being available to companies to do what they like with. And that's, I think, what we need to think about. It's not just about Trump. It's not just about Cambridge Analytica. It's about who has access to our data, how are they going to shape the world that we live in. And of course, we're not stupid. Of course, we're not consuming these things passively. But if what we are talking about is the ability to manipulate using people's information, that is something we need to be concerned about. So for me, this, is, this goes beyond sort of, you know, how, how Trump won the election. It's got to be about... How does our democracy function? Who is trying to manipulate our democracy? In whichever favour, whether that was working for Clinton or Trump. Uh, it just happens that in this case, uh, Cambridge Analytica was focused on Trump. Um, something else that you said there, I've completely lost track of what I was going to say. What did you ask me? Tell me again. I think it's about the bubbles. I think you're going to the want bubbles. to talk about the bubbles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bubbles, what do we do about bubbles? Like, I mean, the, the problem is, one of the, one of the issues is we are all in our own little bubbles now and that's not not just journalists you know it, it, not just in news terms but it used to be in television terms we would all have moments so there'd be the EastEnders moments you know Zoe shouting at cat you're not my mother you know we all remember that do we all remember that <laughs> yeah, they're all too you young do. you're too young yeah <laughs> lots of people would remember that uh, are we going to have those shared moments? Those sh I mean, it sounds ridiculous to call it a shared national moment, but uh, are we going to have enough of those moments? 
or are we all consuming our own little media and our own little world according to the values that we subscribe? That's what I'm also very worried about is the silos. Uh, and I think that's getting worse. It's, you know, the Brexit is, is one of the examples of how our nation has become polarised and people only want to read things that affirm their view that either Brexit is going to be the most terrible thing that ever happened or Brexit is going to be the most brilliant thing that ever happened. How do we get beyond that? Um, the outlets where people who uh, are of different opinions uh, come together are few and far between. And I think we need to see those strengthened. There are, there are so many different ways of um, cutting this and it is a really profound problem for, it's bad now and, and going forward I can't see how we solve it. Um, uh, the organisation I work for is focused mainly on people under 35. When I look at our demographics, almost nobody over 35 gets their news primarily or much at all from, from our site. If we do a really huge story, obviously it, it will go beyond that, but pretty much we are, we are exclusively under 35. When Ofcom or um, uh, the Reuters do an annual survey of, of where people consume their news, when they do it, we, it's not just that we only do the under 35s. Almost nobody under 35 looks at anything mainstream at all, anything that anybody else would recognise as, as, as media outside of their bubble. Now, <coughs> clearly that's sort of, that doesn't seem a problem if everybody under 35 is getting some news. But extrapolate that. We're not, we're not particularly political. We don't run comment. We don't have a political position. We, don't, you know, we, we are biased towards things that young people care about, which might look a bit more progressive, but not really. They were quite pro-Brexit. Uh, it, you know, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. Um, but if, that, if that's such a hard divide, if our view of the world is so different to, say, the Daily Mail's or, or even Channel 4 or, 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 or the BBC. That's quite a profound thing. If you then think about the political split as well, and already my mother and I have absolutely nothing to talk about, I mean, it's, it, that's, quite a that's quite a profound difference. And this, this plays into this idea both of two sets of facts that people are getting completely different skewed sets of facts that fit a, a certain view, but also that people just don't see different sorts of stories. We'll all get behind and amplify the really big stories and they'll, they'll travel far and wide. But what about the ones every day, the accountability stories, the councils that are behaving badly or the um, person running that business that's not done very well, or but, uh, those uh, the schools and the te and the, the the minor scandals that are happening all the time that we're supposed to hold to account. That's that sense of common knowledge is really disappearing. We are very lucky as a nation that we have the BBC, but the BBC unchallenged is not is not the solution either. You can't just keep pouring money at the BBC and go, that's all right, there'll be a set of news. Well, Janine, how BBC. do you personally ensure that you don't seal yourself off and, and live in a bubble? So it, and it's really testing. I have a rule that I won't block anyone on Twitter, that won't, I will occasionally mute someone who's gone off on one, but then nobody nobody's allowed to remain on the mute list more than one day, and then they have to come back on again because you've got to constantly challenge yourself. I worked in America for three and a half years. I have some massive wing nuts in my Twitter feed, but I keep them there because I, think I, need to know what, I need to know what's being said, even though it's often fantasy because this stuff goes very mainstream and otherwise you don't see it. I think if it wasn't my job, I would be very tempted to silence people a lot and only hear the echo chamber of things that what I thought. What about you, Claire? Uh, well, uh, uh, similar tactics, but, uh, but I think there's a, a, a a broader intellectual atmosphere, and actually this is, I mean, we largely uh, work uh, with, in uh, my organisation works uh, with um, uh, under 35-year-olds, or, or, you know, young people. Um, but, uh, but I think there's a kind of broader intellectual problem of the, of the kind of echo chamber, which is, w w there's all sorts of strains in it, you know. Uh, at universities, which I uh, speak endlessly, there is this problem of 
safe spaces and saying I won't want to hear opinions that are different, you know, challenge my own, and that they're called out as being offensive and people are called phobic of one sort or another. But, but you know, if you think about it, what's be it's become acceptable to say, I mute you, not, not on Twitter, but in life, right? I refuse to accept to hear that. And sadly, in, in many ways, we've, we've gone along with that. You know, I think it's shocking that at one of the big journalism schools that there was a campaign to ban the Daily Mail, the Sun and the Express on the basis that they were hate mag uh, newspapers. I don't care what anyone says, right? They are newspapers. And they are newspapers read by millions of people. And the idea that students who are studying journalism would try and eradicate, get them off campus, and, and that they wouldn't notice this might be a threat to press freedom. Or, and, and in other words, I try and read newspapers I don't agree with. I try, try I mean, personally. But I also think we need to encourage a more robust free speech atmosphere in a way and expose people and make the point about the echo chamber. I mean, that's my, you know, we, we organise anything. We say the Academy of Ideas was set up to counter echo chambers, that's what we try and do. And that does mean that you have to have arguments and rouse. And in some ways, it's not just then what facts you have access to, but being prepared to, you know, have your views challenged, be made to feel uncomfortable, and then to say to people, actually, this is what a healthy democratic debate's all about. You won't always agree with what people say. In fact, they'll offend you, and it will be unpleasant, and your facts will be shaken up by other people saying, no, I've got a separate set of facts, and, you know, or we've got the same facts, and we're going to fight over them. But I think that we need to make that broader brush argument for an open, free debate in society in order to be able to defend media freedom and me media plurality. And, you know, um, clearly, intellectually and theoretically, it's a very good thing to do, but it's very hard psychologically to lean into something that repels you and repulses you. And can I just get you to just maybe as a final, perhaps positive thought, how can we harness the best of what digital media has to offer and the best of what legacy journalism has to offer in order for the future to feel bright and optimistic? I mean, if I knew that, I'd be making lots of money right now with a new media organisation, I'm sure. But uh, perhaps we can draw from 2011 if we look at um, what happened with the Arab Spring. And I had many friends and contacts who were activists at the time and the way that they used social media. And yes, it didn't always turn out well in their countries and they saw subsequent backlash. But social media at that time was an incredible tool for mobilising, for contacting journalists, for making people realise what was happening in countries that otherwise wouldn't have got covered. And in that spirit, I think, social media can be that positive force uh, and work together with legacy organisations, if you will. So, that, I mean, that's what I would draw on. Can we please a round of applause for my fantastic panel?